We here at $5 Buzz have very few mandates, most of which revolve around the central tenets of our personalities. We enjoy the art of conversation, and we aim to celebrate Generation X voices that are truly making a difference. Today we have one such kindred spirit with us an acclaimed journalist, author, and fellow podcaster, Bethany McLean. So put your tinfoil hat in the drawer for a while and celebrate refreshing, good old-fashioned, well-researched 5W's journalism in a world full of fake news on this episode of $5 Buzz. Step inside, lock the door behind you. Uh, you're stepping in on another $5 buzz. Uh, we have a lighter crew tonight. Pete Lisk is on assignment. That That's okay. Uh, Roger Mayer in Los Angeles. How are you doing this evening, sir? Fantastic, sir. You know, I got a couple of, uh, got a Mercedes Benz commercial I'm producing this week. So pretty busy along with, uh, we got a few podcasts coming up, you know, uh, one right after another, after another, it's going to be quite eventful. And then I got a reshoot for a movie a following weekend. So busy, busy, busy out here in Los Angeles. That's great, man. And uh, I'm George Kursar. I'm up here in Fairfield, Connecticut. And uh, the most exciting news that I had this weekend is taking in some of the legalized sports gambling up here in the great state of Connecticut. So now, uh, you know, I thought the 49ers had a real shot this weekend, but unfortunately, uh, I'm sad about that. Kevin Colgan, our friend, is sad about that, but uh, that's not that important. Uh, tonight, we're very honored and privileged to have uh, one of the leading uh, voices and journalists and writers of Generation X, uh, in our humble opinion, Bethany McLean. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? Really, we're doing great. We really appreciate your time. And uh, I know that, are you in Chicago tonight? Are you recording from Chicago? I'm recording from Chicago, yeah. Great. What part, um, what part of Chicago? I live in an area called Bucktown. That's where I lived. Oh my goodness, where did you live? Honoré and Wabansia, right, right there, right next to the Get Me High Lounge. Oh my goodness, I live on Wabansia and Wood, so a block away from Club Lucky. That's which- exactly, I was down the street from Club Lucky, like about... Walking distance. Mediocre Italian food, but the world's greatest martinis. That's okay. There we go. This was in the uh, late 1990s when I lived there. Okay. It must have been awesome then. Um, yeah. Club Lucky is the first bar I went to when I came to Chicago, and I still think it is a great bar. That's hysterical. Yeah. I, uh, the Club Subterranean, Double Door, Busy Bee, these were all active back then. And I think they're, I think they're all gone now, aren't they? They're all gone now over the past decade and a half of gentrification. I think the double door, I don't know, did it become a bank? Doesn't everything become a bank or didn't everything become a bank, at least until the pandemic? A bank or a drugstore. But I think we're in a brave new world now, for better and worse. <laughs> Go ahead, George. I'm sorry. No, that's great. I, I love to uh, hear about that type of stuff. And then just real quickly, Bethany, on Chicago, you know, uh, as just an agnostic uh, civilian in the Eastern time zone, you know, we're kind of being bludgeoned with news about the demise of Chicago in the sense of, you know, hyper gun violence. It's almost kind of being portrayed as like a Mad Max situation. And uh, I just read a story recently, maybe the other, a day or two ago about the mayor who um, is really putting her foot down as it relates to vaccine mandates for city employers, which would obviously affect the police department. And I believe that 
there's a good majority of maybe not majority, but a good number of police officers who really don't want to comply with that. So is the problem as uh, terrible as it's being portrayed? And, you know, as someone who spent a large part of her um, professional career dealing with economics, what are the economics of the city if the police department is reduced in any way? And uh, does that incentivize crime and people who are kind of going to take advantage of the fact that the police presence is going to be uh, mitigated? So Chicago, like any big city, is a really complicated ecosystem. And I should say, I'm not only not a native, I've only been here for a little over a decade. And because I primarily worked from home during that time and had small kids, I'm I'm not I'm not as much a Chicagoan as as I would be if I had spent you know my younger years here. Um, that that said, you know it's it's complicated. We've got a mayor who's a first term mayor and hadn't been a politician before, and she's not well liked and isn't regarded as being particularly capable of dealing with the brutal machine that is Chicago Chicago politics. You had her thrust into this situation of the pandemic and. George Floyd's murder and having to deal with all of those things at once, which doesn't make it easy. You've got a city and a state that are already, I think Illinois still has the most underfunded pension plan in the country. And I think Chicago still has the most underfunded pension plans of any major city. So you have a city and a state that were already on the brink of financial catastrophe even before the pandemic hit. Uh, so it, 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 it doesn't look good. <laughs> It really doesn't look good. That that said, people have written Chicago off before, and this city has a lot going for it, including it's just, it's phenomenally beautiful. I think people on the coast don't understand the Great Lakes. A friend of mine came here to visit, and she's like, but, but, but wait, 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 I can't see the other side. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And she's like, but it's a lake. You can see the other side of lakes. I was like, no, 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 no. This is a Great Lake. It's different. Anyway, it's a stupendously beautiful city. It sits at the crossroads where it draws a lot of graduate great graduates from the Midwest who want to come here and be here. Um, and the city of Chicago has a really loyal population. There are a lot of people with money here who care a lot about this city. And I think that's actually its greatest strength. So I think Chicago has a lot of knocks against it, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't count it out. Um, but it's going to be, it's going to be interesting years um, coming out of this pandemic. And I say coming out of this pandemic with a recognition that in some people's view, we're never going to come out of the pandemic. So I don't even know what that means. <laughs> right. And uh, I can tell you firsthand as someone that grew up in New York state. Um, and when I went to Chicago, I was there on a business trip and it was maybe mid-May. And it was like one of those days that was like, everybody in the whole city realized it was like the first day of spring and everyone was out on the lake playing volleyball jogging and it was amazing and uh the proximity to milwaukee which i think is a pretty fun town and uh i really am pulling for chicago i know it seems like it's uh you know people take uh, some enjoyment out of kicking it around but uh i really hope that for the best so. george is representing with his blackhawks hat right there <laughs> yeah it is Back to the police department here too. I mean, police departments are fraught across the country, but it's particularly fraught here in Chicago. The police department yeah. has a really bad history, a really bad, brutal, ugly history. And so 
I don't know what defunding the police looks like everywhere. I don't know what a reduction in police looks looks like here. I don't, the police department has been trying really hard in the last decade, last decade with, with, with some huge disasters, but to do things, to do things differently. But if there's ever a place where policing needs reinventing, it, it, it is in Chicago as well. So as simple as the idea that keeping police officers on the streets and business as usual is a solution for this place, it, it, it is not. It is not so. Understood. Well, I know that you said that you didn't grow up in Chicago. We know that you did grow up in Hibbing, Minnesota, and you know, someone else pretty notable named Bob Dylan grew up there. What was it like growing up in a town where there was a lot of strange people making pilgrimage, maybe looking at your high school and all these? Um, so Hibbing, Minnesota. So, you know, weirdly, Dylan was both present and absent when I grew up. I grew up during the 80s and it was the time of heavy metal and Dylan's music was not particularly well respected in his hometown. Um, in fact, there's this funny story. Um, years later, they tried create some sort of Dylan Memorial or music, or it was an iron mining memorial. And they had a Dylan exhibit. That's what it was. It was when I went back from my high school reunion that the um, iron mining museum, they had created a Dylan exhibit. Then there's this famous story about how when Dylan got up to perform in high school, people threw things, vegetables at him on the stage because they thought he was so bad. And they were like, get off this stage. You're an embarrassment. Um, and what was funny is that the, uh, the exhibit asked people to to, to write out their memories of this event and pin them to the wall. And some people said, I was there. I can't believe how we treated this person who went on to be this incredible star. And other people said, I was there and this never happened. And so I don't know if that this is not precisely where you meant to go with that question, but it speaks to the vagaries of memories, right? That even people who were there can't agree on, on what happened. It took me until leaving Hibbing to start to discover Dylan, though, although um, my boyfriend, when I was in high school, lived in Bob Dylan's former house and showed me once the marking where Dylan tried to carve his name into one of the pillars downstairs. And I'm pretty sure when his family tried to sell that home, they tried to list it in Rolling Stone. But I think even with the Dylan imprimatur, there were not any takers for a home in Hipping, Minnesota. So I don't think it worked. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I, I, um, <clears throat> I read the whole book about when he grew up there and everything and how he became a musician and being one of the only Jewish people in the entire town growing up there. And uh, yeah, he, he has like a weird love hate relationship where he grew up where most of us do, except I grew up in Southern California. So that it's yeah, a little tricky. A little yeah. A little different, I guess. Um, yeah. It's an odd part of the world. It's a really odd part of the world. It's less people think of it as Minnesota, but it's really not. It's Northern Minnesota is its own part of the world and very different from the rest of the state. It's the North country and it's mining country. And it's, you know, then it, it fell on tough economic times starting in the seventies and never really found its way back. And it's 30 below zero for stretches of the winter and the coldest place in the United States. And there's, as you can imagine, all sorts of stuff that comes with all of that. Right. We do call, we do call you transplants though. There's a term called Minnesota nice. You familiar with that term? Because yeah, all right, yeah. Because most people from Minnesota at least come across as being extremely nice people. So yeah, even after I was in New York for about 15, 20 years, people would still look at me and after I'd said something and say, You're not from here, are you? And I'd be like, <laughs> Come on, I need my New York edge. I've been here long enough to have earned it, but no, nothing could eradicate the Minnesota nice. It's not like Los Angeles or New York, you know, and 
Los Angeles, in New York, somebody will you say, hey, how you doing? And they'll say, fuck you. <laughs> and then and they, what they mean, thank you, or I'm doing okay. In Los Angeles, you say, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. And they mean, fuck you. So that's well, it. That's well, here's, it. That's here's it Minnesota. In Minnesota, you say, hey, how you doing? And they say, great. And what they're really thinking is, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Fuck so you, you le- at, at what point you... You uh, went to undergrad or college university at uh, Williams College, which is obviously a very prestigious university with a very illustrious list of uh, alumni. Um, What was the genesis of going there? I mean, it's pretty big departure, uh, leaving the Midwest to uh, such a prestigious university. Did you have like um, a track in mind uh, when you left and what was it like uh, going to, you know, finding yourself on the East Coast in this really renowned uh, establishment? Yeah, so I wish I could tell you some story about how I was always this, you know, kid grand plan. I really wasn't. My parents were not from Northern Minnesota. They had ended up there through an odd combination of circumstance and choice. And they were always very determined that both my sister and I would leave the state for college. And so that was almost part of our deal growing up was no matter what happens, you're, you're not, you're not staying in the Midwest for college, you're going somewhere else. Um, and so that's honestly what, what got me out. I think if it had been up to me, I think there were only two of us from my college, from my high school who left the state for college. And so I think if it had been up to me alone, I'm not sure I would have been one of those two. It wasn't a part of the country where people necessarily, necessarily push kids out the door. I remember um, a college counselor saying to me, you know, if you leave here, people are going to be really mean to you because you're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're not going to be like them. Um, that said, I had two of the best teachers I've ever had in high school, uh, who were brothers, Matt and Dan Bergen. Um, Matt was an English teacher and Dan was a math teacher. And I learned so much from both of them and was so well prepared when I, when I got to college, in fact, better prepared than I had had any right to be, um, thanks in large part to their, to their teaching. Um, and I got lucky. I met really nice people as soon as I got to Williams. Um, So it was, it was, I guess it was a rough transition in some ways. Um, It was definitely, it was definitely weird to be around people who prized academic excellence because that was not part of the milieu where I grew up. A lot of people still went to work in the mines after, after college, after high school. Um, But, but, but I, but I had a very lucky good four years. That's great. That's very interesting. And so when you graduate college, um, you are right in the, I guess, like the upswing of the dot-com era. And you find yourself, I believe, is at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, can you just tell the people what it was like? Um, you know, is Williams a college that is a pipeline to Wall Street investment banks? Is it? Okay. And, yeah. you know, what was it like, um, if you recall, and um, just, to, <clears throat> I guess, for lack of a term, like the whole tryout period to get into like the world's leading investment bank during a time when they were quite frankly must have been doing uh ipos and follow-ons and secondaries around the clock what was that like 
So I graduated a little before that. I got to Wall Street in 1992, which was right after the collapse fueled by the debt bomb of the 1980s LBO shop and failure. And the dot-com boom hadn't really started yet. So sort of this odd lull between the 1980s greed is good Michael Milken era and the start of the dot-com era. And it was a weird depressing lull where we all felt really lucky just to have just to have gotten jobs. And so I, you didn't graduate at that time in the early 90s and feel like the world was your oyster and there were limitless opportunities you felt like especially if you were me and had to get a job because your parents said you're never coming home you felt lucky just just to have a job so i think that was that was part of the environment uh, and the environment in which we graduate i've actually thought about this that the that the, the 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 job environment in which you graduate shapes us in all sorts of ways it shapes whether you're that right out of school experience shapes whether your take is optimistic i'm always going to be able to find a job or kind of pessimistic and scared and so I, I definitely got got the latter. Um, I was not, so I should, it's kind of a funny story, I guess. I was a math major in, in college and had always thought that I would probably go on to get my math PhD. Um, and I worked, Williams had one of the few undergraduate math research programs in the country and I worked in it the summer after my junior year. And had realized already through my math major that I wasn't very good at math um, and realized through working in this program that I really actually hated math too, uh, or at least hated the, the life of a research mathematician. And so I started my senior year with this like blank slate of what what am I going to do now? And I had no idea what investment banking was. My parents were scientists and were not, had no idea what investment was I think our local bank was called Merchant and Miners, and that was as much as I knew about the banking business. Um, so I was trying to write a cover letter to apply for jobs at the, at the career counseling office, and Williams did have a big pipeline into into investment banks, and I couldn't get my cover letter to print out on one page. So I got really frustrated, and I took my resume and stuck it in all the slots that didn't require cover letters, and those were all the slots for the investment banks. And essentially, really, they were like female math major, great. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> I don't think they knew what they were getting. Oh, I certainly little did they know. And at oh. that point in time, was it were there a lot of women uh, contemporaries going into that field um, in the early nineties? There actually were a lot of women starting. The, the Wall Street banks had started to make a big effort for a more at a more at a, a junior level for a more diverse um, for a more diverse uh, um, slate of analysts. So I think my analyst class was forty percent women. It was it was it was quite. But um, but once you looked into the associate and then the more senior ranks, I worked in Goldman's mergers and acquisition department, and I think there was one female partner, maybe two female female vice presidents. I mean the more year you got the more there were no role models and it was it was a tough environment and it was not i was not, I was not a young investment banker <laughs> and at some point you um decided that i guess it, it occurred to you that you wanted to uh do some writing and the you know um what i first learned of you was obviously a very important book that you wrote uh that was kind of uh reflecting on the uh entered the commodity uh, trading, is, was it trading or was it, it was commodity um, improprieties uh, related to Enron. And I know, I, you know, Roger can speak uh, eloquently about um, the film that, you know, was based on the book that you wrote, but maybe could you just give, shade the background a little bit, how you got the idea to kind of pursue that. And then, well, what you know. Was the, what was the stepping stone? The, the, what was in between that? Obviously, to get to the point that you write that book, what were you writing in between that? And the book is called The Smartest Guys in the Room. Just and so Ron, we, the smartest guys yes, in the room. Yes, correct. 
I'll try to be, be fast. Yeah, I left investment banking and instead of going to business school, which is what most people did, I suddenly had this epiphany where I realized that if I went to business school, I was just going to have a lot of debt and I was going to end up right back on Wall Street or in a business career. And I thought, but I've never wanted to, I never wanted to do this. And I thought just randomly, I've always wanted to be a journalist. And that wasn't something that was really um, encouraged in how how I grew up. So so I had never done anything along these lines. I, I majored in English as well as math, but I had never tried to write for a school paper or anything else. So I got my job at Fortune. Back in those days, the big glossy magazines had money and they hired people as fact checkers. So you could just get in the door. You didn't have to know how to write. You just had to be able to check facts. And that's how I got my job. And I would never have gotten a job otherwise. Um, and I think I pretty quickly got a reputation of being debatable smart but definitely unable to write um, and so these were the days when everybody wanted to do big profiles of the new dot-com celebrity CEOs and nobody was gonna sign me to write those because I was viewed as not being able to write so the stuff I did was grungier it was stock picking stories you know it was however I could get published um, and try to learn how try to learn to learn how to write um, and so as a result I got to know a lot of people in the market and a lot of what are known as short sellers which are people who are betting that stocks are gonna are gonna go down and in those days they were a quiet bunch. They never spoke on the record and you had to know them to, to know something. And I had started through writing these stock picking stories over the years, I'd started to realize that the market isn't all that it appears to be. If you only know the surface, then you're mostly going to get buy recommendations because everybody makes money when stocks go up and people buy. And I started to realize that a lot of it, a lot of it, a portion of it was a scam. And so I wanted to be, I didn't want to be the one selling Celebrating the scam and helping people get get taken advantage of. I wanted to be the one outing the scam, and not for any sort of great desire to take business down. It really wasn't that. It was more. I don't like to be wrong, and I was tired of writing stories about companies only to watch them crash, crash and burn, and think, why didn't I know? How can I know in the future? So a source of mine told me to look at Enron, a guy named Jim Chanos, who's still a pretty well-known short yeah, seller. Yeah, he's one of the biggest there is, isn't he? Yeah, all around. And he said, "Why don't Why don't you take a closer look at Enron?" And I, I was I, I honestly got lucky because I had this very random background for a journalist, given that I had worked at Goldman um, before coming to journalism. No one I knew at that time had that background, and it, it's one of those nice synchronicities in life, right? Where this very random background I had actually enabled me to do the story because I was able to dig out Enron's financial statements and go through them and build models. And I knew when I didn't know how it worked and had questions that I was right to have questions. It wasn't just because I didn't understand because I'd spent three years, 100 hour weeks at Goldman Sachs doing exactly that and, you know, building models. And so I, I just I, I got lucky. You know, it was one of those really random moments where the right story just happened to cross my desk. So that was the genesis. And so so then you what so what happens to you immediately when that comes out? to you as a human, I mean, you as a person. So when I wrote the original story, no one really cared. It was still, the dot-com boom hadn't totally crashed. It was spring of 2001. Um, 
and Enron was still, people were starting to realize something was, was wrong and the stock was falling, but it wasn't, it hadn't crashed and burned yet. It was really only after the Enron went bankrupt that people looked back and said, why didn't anybody ask questions? And then people said, oh, wait, somebody did. And they held up my, my story, which really wasn't all that. The story raised questions about how um, Enron made its money, but it didn't say, you know, this thing is a fraud and it's going to be bankrupt in six months. Um, I've often, I've actually joked that the Enron, my Enron story should have won awards um, for the meekest title in history because the title was, is Enron overpriced? And yeah, given that it was bankrupt six months later, yeah, it was, it was overpriced. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, so it really wasn't until the company went bankrupt that, um, that I'd say my life changed and, you know, TV shows wanted me to come on and talk about it. And I ended up, I ended up writing this book um, called The Smartest Guys in the Room. But, 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 but it wasn't, a, I didn't do the story because I thought it was going to make my career and it, and it didn't initially. It was just sort of came and, yeah, and I went on to do other things. How long after the book was written that um, the, who, who initialized the documentary? Was it Gibney or was it somebody else? So it was at the time Alex Gibney's sister-in-law worked at Fortune and the media person and she put the book in front of him and said i think this would make a great documentary and you should take a look at it her name is carrie welch and that's how alex initially read the book and <laughs> to be perfectly honest I, I when alex said he wanted to make a documentary i was like good luck with that <laughs> the idea that you could take this incredibly complicated story and make it into something that would be visually interesting was inconceivable to me. So when they showed up to film at my house, I had just come home from yoga practice. I stuck my hair in a ponytail, didn't put any makeup on. Later when the film was in theaters, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and <laughs> you, you were shot by one of the greatest photographers, cinematographers in the I mean, It was, yeah. Uh, Maurice Alberti, who did The Wrestler. It was, yeah. it, it was, it was such an education for me because I also grew up, my parents never had a TV in the house and they still don't. So I, I grew up sort of visually ignorant in many ways. And so learning how to think about stories in visual terms, it really started for me with Enron and it was such a lesson in how Alex is obviously a master at this, but how you can take complex stories and represent them visually in a way that is coherent and compelling to people. And I just, especially at that time would not have had a clue how to go about that. I mean, it wasn't even conceivable to me that it was doable. Crazy. Approached by Academy Award winning documentarian, you know, one of the biggest now in the world. When you say the word documentarian, Alex Gibney, you know, is right underneath Ken Burns as being, you know, like the most prominent documentarian in the world at the moment. But, you know, he, uh, wasn't, he wasn't back then. So no, he wasn't. Well, Taxi from the Dark Side did win the Oscar just before Enron came out. That was a big one. That was a it, big was, one. it was actually just after Enron. Oh, just after. Shit, what year was that? That was like 09 or was okay. it earlier? That was like, um, that was one of the first um, exposés of some of the, you know, horrors of, uh, I guess, was it, is it Iraq? Was it going on in Iraq? Guantanamo and the famous. Yeah, um, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, but no, no, Enron was nominated for an Academy Award yep. in 2006 and we oh, lost. Two lost. Lost. the Penguins. Penguins, which we call now March of the Effing Penguins. Um, <laughs> because you also lost Sundance to March of the Fucking Penguins, too. When you guys were at Sundance, I actually worked at, so I ran a department there at Sundance that year. So oh. I actually had your 
movie literally in my hands at one time, literally in my hands at one point. Uh, I ran the print room. We made, we made sure all the movies got to every single screening that it had. Wow, what a cool job. I was in charge of that at that time. And it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a hit at Sundance too. I remember it was being a much discussed movie, but that fucking penguin movie just kept marching on like nobody's business. Um, what's that? I said, I believe me. I know. I, 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 know, I, know. I, I still have never seen March of the Penguins. I can't bring myself to watch it. Even all these years later, it's just too upsetting. <laughs> Well, it does have the voice of God as the narrator, Mr. Morgan Freeman. So that's 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 how it that's how it won its little award there. Um, hey, George, you, is it uh, time for a quick little break there? We could, or if you guys want to just keep uh, rolling, do you? Bethany? We can keep we can keep rolling. I'm good. Okay, cool. So, uh, Bethany, uh, uh, one of the real reasons I really wanted to talk to you. Um, and I'm thank you again for taking the time. I was really surprised when you responded. So thank you very much. Is I was reading, I, I come from a finance background previous to you. I worked at Bear Stearns, Deutsche Bank, Jefferies, which was my favorite, the favorite place I ever worked. I love Jefferies. And I made a career, uh, horrible career decision to go to the Royal Bank of Canada. And I don't work in finance anymore. So um, I was the reason I bring that up is I, li I lived for a long time in Stanford, Connecticut, which was the home, as you know, to Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And um, during my job, we always had to find clients that really weren't trading with the firm that I was working at. And from every place that I worked, I would go on the Bloomberg terminal and I would run the filter and I would keep finding, I, I don't know if they were, they might've been listed as Purdue. And there was an obscene amount of trading activity. There was a pretty big assets under management. I'm like, this is an ideal client for the business that we're, we're involved in. And I could never, and I said, oh, they're in Stanford. I'm like, who are these people? And I could never get through on the phone. There was nobody to contact. And it just made me want it more. I'm like, who is this? I got to find out who they are. And lo and behold, I find out that Purdue Pharmaceuticals is the company that is essentially responsible for exporting the opioid crisis to the world. And I was reading a book uh, by Patrick Keefe. It's called Empire of Pain, which is a great book that I think everybody should read. And uh, towards the end of the book, he started referencing uh, an interview that you did with, uh, I is it one of the only interviews ever given by a member of the Sackler family? Is that accurate? I think it might be the only one at least given i think some sacklers who weren't involved with purdue have spoken but i think it's the only one given by somebody who worked at who, who served on the board of purdue right um so for those that don't really know the sackler family basically ran the company purdue pharmaceutical they actually brought valium to uh, the world so this is a family who uh, already was generationally wealthy they probably didn't even if uh, Oxycontin never happened, they would probably have enough money for generations of the family really to be extraordinarily comfortable. They were um, dealing at the highest levels of academia, the business world, uh, philanthropy, which is kind of disturbing lens into, um, you know, how the world works and how people are really look, willing to look the other way as long as they can make a buck, I guess. But um, 
I guess the point I'm trying to make is you had the opportunity to speak to a member of this family who, you know, I would say the majority of society would look at as a pariah and really cause a lot of pain and suffering. And some people might know this show on Netflix called Dope Sick, which I think is kind of, I'm sorry. It's kind of related to it and it's kind of bringing a, a light onto it. So, uh, you know, I'd like to hear from you. What is it like? confronting someone that seems to have really no problem with you know I guess besides uh this might be a controversial statement besides like the holocaust has there ever been a more systematic profiteering way of pain and suffering and just completely being indifferent to it I think um let's see where to start with that um sorry that was a long-winded uh intro there and it's it's one of the most important things to happen to our country and we've all gotten a little um, distracted given given the covid pandemic but the opioid crisis didn't go away during the pandemic in fact it arguably got worse and so that is still, it's still a crisis our country has to deal with and and i hope we can turn some of the same focus toward dealing with it and dealing with the lives that are being lost to that the way we did the way we did the pan, the pandemic but i'll get off my soapbox now uh, yeah, so so one of the things that has interested me in my now 25 years of covering business is that people are rarely all bad. We have this complicated mixture of some evil, some greed, some self-delusion. The human capacity for self-delusion and rationalization is endless. And so what fascinated me about the story of Purdue's and the Sacklers was, the Sacklers was their ability to rationalize what had happened and their ability even now to keep rationalizing it. And they really, really, as came through in that story, do not see themselves as the bad guys. They think the world has gotten it wrong. They think they set out to do something admirable, which was reduce the pain and suffering in the world by creating this miracle drug. And they think that the problems with the drug were not knowable in advance and that they essentially have been given a bad rap by a world looking for a villain. In some ways, and I'm gonna come back to that, in some ways I agree with them. But I think what's really stunning as I tried to do in that piece is when you delve into the details, is the number of way, ways in which they deliberately looked the other way in order to avoid seeing things that would have forced somebody with moral compass to say we need to stop selling this drug and the ways in which they twisted data and and looked the other way and didn't see problems because they didn't want to and then used the complicity of the whole societal apparatus complicity which they had bought and paid for to justify their decisions and what you know what i mean by that is that yeah it was doctors who prescribed um oxycontin it wasn't purdue out there prescribing oxycontin but the doctors got a lot of money from purdue and in order to prescribe oxycontin right so 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 the fda approved oxycontin and approved it with all the labels that said this thing isn't addictive you know doesn't doesn't cause addiction but purdue and other pharmaceutical companies provide a lot of the fda's operating budget and offered the guy who approved um, oxycontin who approved the labeling a job when when he left yeah so, he curiously got a job for uh, i think it was half a million dollars in the early 90s given inflation and uh, what is that worth now? I, I so what I think is that, that's what I meant by I don't pretty disturbing. I, yeah, but what I meant on some level, but by, by saying that they, they aren't the villains, the world perceives them 
them as is that this took the complicity of the system. If our system weren't purchasable, if our system couldn't be bought, then this wouldn't have happened. And so by focusing only on the Sacklers and saying, if it weren't for the Sacklers, we wouldn't have a problem. We let everybody else along the way from the, from, 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 from the doctors who prescribed this, this medicine, running pill mills, to the hospital board, the joint commission that, that, that created these standards that penalized hospitals if patients didn't get their painkillers because the patients would complain that their pain hadn't been treated. Um, and then the hospital would get dinged on its reimbursements because they hadn't handed out Oxycontin like, like, like candy. So there to the FDA, which continued to approve Oxycontin and all the other makers versions of opioids, even in the face of evidence that this stuff was causing an enormous problem. So to me, the Sacklers are both the problem and yet our monomania about them obscures the larger problem. And I see that happen time and time again, right? We as humans want to find one villain. We want to say, you're the one who did it. And if it weren't for you, devil, ultimate devil, we would all be perfect. And the reality is that it's a lot actually a lot uglier than that. Same is true of the Enron story, right? Yeah, the Enron guys did bad things, but if it hadn't been for the complicity of the system, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, the board of directors, the investors who just wanted to get rich, the whole thing never would have happened. So I, I, I find that I actually don't like things that don't make us look at the bigger system because I think it, it, it lets the bigger system off the hook. I think he did a really, uh, uh, Keith did a great job of really Job. painting the picture that the problem is is man evil right it's not just the sacklers right it's this unholy union of the advertising industry the government the academics who you know will have you believe yale columbia are these bastions of uh society pillars of society that your children should aspire to be well why do i want to send my children to an environment where that these type of decisions are being not only being made and profitized, profiteered on, but um, you're enabling it. And like, was there, and the same with Enron, did anybody anywhere have like the moral compass to say, guys, you know what? It's not all about money. It, you know, when is enough enough? You know, it, 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 is everybody compromised in these positions where they just, everybody's just looking the other way. It's okay. Is there, are there no good humans? Uh, in this equation, which I find hard to believe. There's not anybody that's going to stand up and say, hey, guys, like, you know. We've been having this argument for a long time. Enough off. is enough. It goes when is enough back, enough? Right? It goes all the way back to Upton Sinclair, man. You know, yeah. it's as far as people pointing this shit out. And, and it comes yeah. down to, I mean, that's a running theme throughout all of uh, Bethany's work, it seems like, too. The bigger picture of all these injustices happening at a core level that we're all sort of involved with you know it's 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 whether it's the mortgage industry which you also did quite a bit of few pieces on and i can unfortunately speak to that on some level myself uh what you wrote a a book called all the devils are here correct and that's the um that's a non-fiction book right yeah all my books are non-fiction no, some of the people i might, might might say that they're fiction, but they're not. They're all nonfiction. Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm sorry. I meant to say it was fiction, and I, I misread that. No, I was reading that. I mean, so you've tackled some fairly big industry-wide corruption, you know, that is all mostly inherently in the United States. How does this impact the larger global um, financial world in particular? And, and what can you say to 
this being beyond just an American border government problem, but a problem, you know, with the entire planet? So I'm not an expert on the entire planet, but what, 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 I, what, I, what I would say is that I think, I guess I think there, there are two things and they're kind of different, but I'll, but I'll just go on two different tangents. One is that I do think the financial crisis in retrospect is more of a societal crisis for America than it is a financial crisis. We fixed the financial crisis, whether we fixed it in a sustainable way by throwing gobs of, of government money at it or not. I, I, I don't know. We can argue that point. But but, but we fixed it. But what we didn't fix is the way the rest of the world looks at American capitalism now, because we all celebrated American capitalism as something that worked. And these people, most these guys, mostly guys, were supposed to be smart. They were supposed to understand risk management. They were supposed to have all of this under control. And the financial crisis revealed the fallacy of all of that in a way that I think we have not recovered from and in a way that I'm not sure we, we, we should recover from. But I think on a lot of this stuff, I guess on a totally different note, the lesson to me out of all of this is not, oh my God, we're such good people and look at all those bad people doing bad things. It's that we all have an enormous capacity for self-delusion and placed in the wrong environment, we're all probably capable of behavior that would that would that would horrify us in in retrospect or horrify us from from where we sit now. I've often thought that if leaving Goldman, a headhunter had lured me to this aggressive upstart energy company based in Texas called Enron, and I had end up ended up working there, would I have been a force for good? Would I have been a whistleblower who said, "Look at all of this," or would I have been young, looked at the culture around me and the way things were done, and and taken it for granted that this was the way way business was done? I hope the former, but you know, I suspect the latter. We're all products of our environment, which is why I, I have one piece of advice to younger people. It's choose your environment carefully because your environment will affect you probably more than, than, than you affect it. So I guess I don't look at any of these or many of these stories and think what awful people. I look at these stories and think there, but for the grace of God, go, go I, right? Because I've been lucky enough to be placed in environments where I've been able to be so far, knock on wood, is there wood around here? <laughs> So far, so far, able, able, able to, to try to try to get it right. Um, so I, 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 I think, I think self-delusion is an enormously powerful force. I live in an artist loft called the brewery, which is a factory. It definitely has a main effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, but if, but if you, but if you live in a, if you live in an environment surrounded by light minded people who have great lives and don't care that much about money and know how to find enjoyment without having gobs of money, then you're going to think, hey, this lucre is not that not that important. If you're a billionaire, and you now score yourself and your entire ego is based on keeping up with other billionaires, well, then you start to think that if I have fewer billions, I suck as a human being. And I really think a lot of what goes wrong in our world is that simple. It's all these really rich men, and they are mostly men. Mm -hmm. uh, Feel like somehow they are less than if they have fewer billions than other billionaires and so it's become this stupid competition that has nothing about what the money actually buys i know them both well personally <laughs> both ends of that spectrum um speaking so of ones oh, go ahead roger i, I was just going to ask i mean you know what <clears throat> with that focus that that laser eye which you're which you're using to um over the last was it 15, 20 years you've been writing these uh, nonfiction books? I mean, what's I, more than just what's next? What is right now? What do you see right now that is something that, you know, 
might be in the same vein of what you've been doing most of your journalism on thus far. What is it that you're looking at or keeping an eye on? So the guy I wrote All the Devils Are Here with, and he also edited Smartest Guys in the Room, a guy named Joe Nocera, and I um, signed a contract to write a book about the pandemic. And so that's what is taking up most of my of my time. Really, the how the pandemic sort of highlighted and exacerbated an existing problems with our economy and our society, and sped up some some of the ways in which they were going to hit us in the face. And so that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to write about. So it's it's hard. It's it's a really difficult book, book project. So that's taking up um, a great deal of my time. And then I do a podcast like you guys. Right. <laughs> podcast with a professor at the University of Chicago named Luigi Zangales. He's an economist. And we do a podcast called Capital Isn't, where we try to take um, take topics and look at through them through the lens of, is this how we want capitalism to be? Or is this not how we want capitalism to be? Is this an example of capitalism working? Or is it an example of capitalism malfunctioning? And what does it say about our society? So it's been, it's been fun. As you guys know, it's a little challenging to do a podcast with somebody else. It's challenging find your your rhythm and your and your and your questioning but um but luigi's brilliant and so it's a pleasure it's a pleasure getting to watch his mind work or he has mind work i don't watch it i listen to it there you go it's a podcast is it just the two of you going back and forth or do you bring on other people too we bring on guests so we usually bring on authors who have written about something that we find an interesting topic to explore yeah we usually bring on somebody but every once in a while we knock it around ourselves usually yeah. something usually something lighter in tone when we when we go down those avenues um are you enjoying your podcast? how many long how many years you've been doing it oh we just started doing it i guess it's been about a year so it says in your wikipedia page it's called making a killing but you said it it had a different title yeah making a killing was a podcast i tried to do by myself the illuminary um this one is called capitalism i do like it i find it um as you guys probably know i find it the, the, the art of interviewing someone for other people's consumption is very different than the art of interviewing somebody to get information out of them. And so people think that journalists would make natural podcasters. I, I don't um, because I, I know how to interview somebody to listen and to get information from them. I don't know how to interview someone to shape their conversation in real time for somebody else, for a listener to find no. interesting. And I find, that re- I find that really challenging. We enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bethany, I know a lot of your um, career is, you know, you're by virtue of being a woman, as you said, you've been interacting with and like maybe I would say uh, taking on like the conventional thinking of a man, the powerful men like the billionaires and, uh, you know, investment banking types and masters of the universe, as uh, they, they used to say. I have two daughters. What would you say to, um, you know, what, how would you, advice would you give some women that wanted to kind of pursue a career where um, maybe, uh, would you say it wasn't the friendliest uh, environment for a woman entering into these uh, institutions that were male dominated like Goldman Sachs or Enron, or uh, I know you've been doing some work about Tesla, right? Uh, Some writing about that. what kind of advice would you give to the future generation of women that want to do the, ask these bigger questions and take on um, the status quo uh, type thinking? You can hear, you can probably hear my daughter, speaking of daughters, singing in the background. <laughs> yeah. 
That is a, that is a 12 year old bolt, bolting out a song at the top of her lungs. Um, so let me see. So I, I never necessarily set out to be, um, to be a female alone in a, in a, in a male dominated world. I think what advice would I have? I think it's always to do your homework. Um, um, always to be to be more educated and knowledgeable than people expect you to be, and the the bar is low. There are a lot of people who will go into interviews and go into conversations without having done their 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 homework. Um, I think to always to always try hard. Hard, always 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 do your best and to not be to not be afraid you know i had to get that knocked out of me a little bit and i'm grateful to my years my early years at goldman because when i got there i was afraid to even pick up the phone and you know at goldman one of the one of the few good things about it was you did get placed on the front lines of having to do things and you had people scream at you and i think by the time i came out of there i was no longer nearly as afraid as i had been beforehand and so i think that's the best advice i could I could give is just is just not not to, to to do your homework and not not to be afraid. I mean, you you can be afraid if you're putting yourself in physical harm's way and you're going up against people who are going to physically injure you. But you know, life rarely gets that glamorous. <laughs> for better, this is not a for better or worse. This is for better. And and I think just to remember that people are going to try to intellectually intimidate you. And as long as you're not afraid and you're willing to say. Okay, I don't understand that. Okay, that doesn't make sense to me. Can you please explain that to me again? That you will get more answers than if you pretend to get it because you're afraid to ask. It's true. You, I mean, you've had some attacks against you. I mean, you've had some people come at you. Obviously, um, that was it. The um, Overstock.com dude, for instance, yeah. uh, being one of them. Uh, so you've had to weather some of this. You know, when you're going after big game like that, you're obviously. Has anybody ever threatened to sue you over some of this uh, information or does that, has that happened a lot or? Not, not a lot, but it's happened. Um, for sure, the, the, the two scarier things as a journalist are that you're going to be wrong and you're going to be ridiculed because you're wrong. And that um, it's less a problem now that I don't work for a magazine, but it's for sure a problem for a lot of people who are on staff at places because, and it was even when I was writing about Enron all those years ago, because if you, the dirty little secret of corporate America is that if you're a journalist and you write things they don't like, they won't talk to you. And so for a lot of journalism that depends on access, that depends on being able to get a quote from the CEO or being able to get news from the company, you're out of luck. If you write things they don't like, they'll squeeze you out of the loop. And that almost makes it impossible for people to do their jobs because they can't get access anymore. So that is how corporate America has always kept the press under control. And it's one good thing, debatably good thing about the way journalism has evolved is that it's far harder for corporate America to control the press that way anymore because there's so many places and so many outlets and so many people who don't have to give a damn butt access that it that the, the old rules are broken. But I think the same is true about journalism itself though, in that there's so many different outlets for it. There's also a lot of sloppier journalism that's out there because of because of that. Yeah. And I mean, the old, what was the old rule? You had to have two sources to back up a fact, you know, the, yeah. all the president's men, right? They're all chasing around looking for that second person to say, yeah. you, you know, or Bradley wasn't going to release the, uh, you know, the Pentagon Papers. Yeah. But, 
and you had to fact check everything. And there's a, there's, there's not only an intellectual honesty that comes with fact checking, there's a moral honesty that comes with fact checking. What I mean by that is that, you know, we talk a lot about freedom of the press, but freedom cuts both ways. It means that freedom of the press also means responsibility of the press. And that means that you have to give people a chance to respond before you publish and i see a lot on social media and a lot out there of what i would what i would call bullying it's really easy to write something nasty about someone if you don't have to call them and tell them beforehand yeah. <laughs> but what i mean by moral honesty is if you have to call that person and be like hey here's what i'm saying about you you want to respond that's <laughs> provides a pretty good check <laughs> love it and bethany i know we're getting close to the time we want to be mindful of your time and we really appreciate uh, you coming on one story that I kind of just that most people may know about and I think it's fairly new is this uh, you you may have seen it about this gentleman Dave Portnoy who's kind of um, an entertainer but I, I would certainly wouldn't call him a journalist but he's kind of leveraged the social media um, access of the last few years and uh, there was a story written about him by Business Insider, and that's a publication I believe owned and operated by Henry Blodgett. Um, you probably remember him from as an analyst who uh, I think was barred from the SEC or the securities industry for maybe making some, uh, writing some uh, analyst, um, you know, investment reports to the public that may not have been completely factual. But um, is that sort of like what you're getting to? This guy, Portnoy, is coming out saying these stories aren't true. But um, obviously, uh, Business Insider felt uh, they had strong enough um, credibility to publish it. But they decided to put the story behind a paywall. It all seems kind of, uh, I, I don't know what to think of it. I mean, uh, this guy, Portnoy, seems like he could be... Um, maybe not the highest moral character, or maybe that's the character he plays and comes across to the public, but also uh, someone like Henry Blodgett who has um, you know, kind of a blemished uh, track record. How do we trust him? Uh, is this a story you're following or is this kind of just more of like a WWF type um, uh, theater to kind of maybe distract us from more important things going on? Well, we all need distractions from more important things. <laughs> no, it's it's not a story I'm following, but that is not a comment on whether the story is important at, at all right. or not. I am right. over my own book, and so I right. don't things that I that might be entertaining, and I don't look at things that are important that I should I should be be reading. I'm not sure that Henry Blodgett's um, provenance has much to do with it. To be honest, um, he did. I don't remember exactly the details of what happened to him, but. It was part of the, he was issuing um, glowing recommendations on stocks that he didn't think that highly of in the first dot-com boom. Mm -hmm. He was doing what everybody else was doing. And so I know he got punished somehow for it. The whole world should have been punished for it. That was the way things operated. Everybody knew that was what was going on. Um, Business Insider, I don't think he still owns it. I think he sold it to a German company maybe, and they've got an incredibly professional staff of um, writers and editors. My guess is that if they if they wrote it and published it, it's, it's pretty solid. And if it was getting a lot of traction, then they probably put it behind a paywall because one of the ways journalism is trying to survive is if you have a hot piece that everybody wants to read, then you try to use it to make people subscribe. Mm -hmm. So they're paying your work rather than you giving it away for free because that was proving incredibly unsustainable. So I don't think any of that has any cast any 
aspersions on a story whatsoever, but since I haven't read it, I, I, I don't know. Could be a great story, could be a terrible story. I have, I have no idea. But if Business Insider published it, then they, then they believed it was solid. They weren't, there aren't, there aren't that many reputable publications that will put something out there that they don't believe in, which isn't to say I've gotten things wrong. We all get things wrong, which mm -hmm. isn't to say they're, they're right. Yeah. Understood. Well, um, Roger, um, I know we're getting close to the, the end of our time here uh, with Bethany. I just want to say thank you. Uh, we really appreciate it. We're looking forward um, to the work that you're doing. I mean, how far off are we from, is this book just really in the uh, early stages and uh, we probably should check on you uh, in on it at a later date? You should check on me. Make sure I'm still hanging in there. But I'm hoping the book will be out by this time next year, if not before. But we've we've got a long way to go. So fast for something that's still going on. Yeah, yeah, right. So that's that's it is a bit of a moving target. Although I think we can see some of the problems that 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 made us so ill prepared to handle it, um, and that that why why it wreaked so much havoc on it i think that that can be diagnosed from now but how it ends i still think is a mystery yeah me too me too and beth bethany i, I want to thank you again for coming on board and you know as it sounds like you're super busy as we all are doing our things and you know that the fact that you are out there fighting the good fight i think is more important than anything else and i i respect the hell out of honest journalism always have always will and, you know, it's some of my favorite, you know, I read a lot of voracious reader throughout my, my life and, you know, reading journalistic pieces that, that really go after with something with a breadth of knowledge and awareness about the subject matter that they're, and, and it could be anything. And I don't just mean something that's investigative in a criminal sense either, you know, um, just, just writing in general is hard and getting something published is even more difficult. So Congratulations on that to begin with. I did for a minute seconding that thought. I don't know if you just heard her howling in the background, but she decided to weigh in and she says, yes, it's really hard. And now she's like, thank you for your kind words. So thank you. <laughs> Have a great night, you guys. <laughs> I'm going to sign off here real quick. And I want to thank everybody for listening on this, next, on this latest edition of $5 Buzz. If you have any comments, questions, uh, if you have any uh, future guests or uh, episodes you would like us to talk about, please email us at $5buzz, and that's F-I-V-E-D-O-L-L-A-R-B-U-Z-Z -Z at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as we can, as soon as we're done taking down the next criminal empire. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you.